As a free, not-for-profit service, Cradio requires the support of people like you to help keep us going in our mission. To donate, visit cradio.org.au slash donate. Cradio. Hermeneutics of Gender, a talk by Connor McSweeney. So I've modified my title somewhat. It's a lot more scary now. Um, my new title is a hermeneutics of gender. Basically, how the hell do you interpret gender today, given the kinds of pressures and questions that we face? So that's kind of what I want to look at. And within that, you know, you can consider any number of sort of perspectives. You can consider an evolutionary perspective. There's all sorts of interesting data um, around that field. You can consider a metaphysical perspective, and of course, that's figured strongly in our Catholic faith. There's bio- biology, there's the sciences. Neuroscience says something interesting about sexual difference, seeming to identify you know, a male brain versus a female brain. There's a lot of different things going on, so we could talk about that. Um, I just kind of want to, I think, tell a kind of story about some of the classical conceptions of what it means to be male and work through, or female, and work through some of these questions with you here today. Does that sound all right? I'm going to try and get through the material and then we can sort of open it up for questions. But I'm really not going to answer probably as many questions as I might raise. And what you can do in the question period is push me to try and answer some questions in a little more direct way. Again, what I want to look at is the variables. And I want to try and show some of the complexities, some of the tensions in terms of how we come to this question, not only of masculinity, but the very question of being a body, the very question of existing in temporality, in context, in the created world. What does that mean, particularly for the believer, if our destiny is not this world, but the next? If somehow the spiritual age of the time when they neither marry nor are given in marriage in the coming kingdom? What does it mean for questions of bodily existence, masculinity, femininity, etc.? So these are the kind of questions that I'll be looking at. So where to begin then? Is everyone here familiar with the Calvin and Hobbes comic strip? More or less? I, I loved it in when I was... Oh, it must have been late 90s, early 2000s. I'm not that old, but it probably dates me a little bit. Um, I bought all the volumes. I had a stack of the, the comic strips about like that, and I just, just love them. I mean, it's fantastic. Um, so there's this comic strip with, and if I was technologically savvy, I could have sort of tried to get you know, an, an image of it, but I'll just explain what it is. There's this Calvin strip with Calvin, of course. He's this little boy who hangs out with this tiger who comes to life, and he creates this whole imaginative world, and they go on all these adventures. So in this particular strip, Calvin is standing with a hammer in his hand, triumphantly. He says, I have a hammer. I can put things together. I can knock things apart. I can alter my environment at will and make an incredible din all the while. Ah, it's great to be male. So he seems to be tapping into something very primeval, very primordial, very ancient about what it means to be male. Now there's another one. This time it's Calvin in his undies flexing in front of the mirror. And he says, made in God's image, yes, sir. So again, this notion of sort of strength, vitality, independence. This is what it means to be a man. Now, of course, in this particular comic strip, um, Hobbes turns to Calvin and he says, I think God must have had a goofy sense of humor. (laughs) 
So Hobbes is saying, well, it's kind of weird. You're standing there in your undies. You're this, you're this scrawny little guy. So Hobbes is saying, well, at the end of the day, you're mortal. You're weak. You're going to die. So strength is illusory. So what does that mean if we want to say that somehow masculinity is independence, strength, vitality, and all these kinds of marks that we've associated with being male? Now, imagine that you're in a very primitive environment. You're a primeval man. You're basically a caveman. Maybe you've got a few goats. You're probably moving around in various places. You've got a tent that you set up. And really, existence is very difficult. Every waking hour is spent trying to eke out enough food to keep your family alive. You're dealing with saber-toothed tigers, let's say, um, trying to protect them from you know, slitting your throat and your children's throat and your wife's throat. You're just trying to make a living. And of course, there's other warring tribes, so that's really complicated as well. You know, you've got to do battle with the elements. You've got to do battle with animals. You've got to do battle with your neighboring warring tribes. So this is kind of, you know, very basic, primordial, evolutionary, primeval human existence. Existence was very tough. People didn't have time to think about the big questions of life. It was basically just surviving on a day-to-day -day basis. Now in that context, let's say, what do masculinity and femininity look like? Or what do masculine and feminine roles look like? So I think you could say fairly safely that there's a pretty clear sense here, just given basic physiology, that it makes more sense for the woman, the one who bears children, to stay near the home, near the tent, whatever dwelling you have, to probably do the kinds of things that you would do around that place, maybe tend a little bit of a garden here and there. You're basically looking after the kids. She's probably breastfeeding. So the bottom line is she's not mobile. She's looking after the kids and she's very tight. She's very vulnerable. She can't really defend herself. She's not as strong as man is. And so these, all these sort of things sort of lend us this notion that perhaps a woman's place is in the home. It kind of makes sense on this basically prime, primeval kind of uh, account. Now, by contrast, you've got the male. The male seems to be naturally stronger. He seems to have this aggressive streak. He seems like he's pretty good at protecting. He's pretty good at fighting. Um, he doesn't have the same sort of physical demands on his body that childbearing does. He's mobile, he's able to come and go, and that's not going to be a problem. He doesn't have to breastfeed the kids. You know, it's, it's a little bit tricky taking a, putting the baby on your back and sort of go hunting mammoths. Um, that's probably, you know, modern health and safety sort of standards would look askance at that. So, okay, it makes more sense for the woman. You stay home, look after the kids. I'm going to go out, and I'm going to do battle. So there's this notion of kind of risk, adventure, there's competition because he's got to man up and look after his vulnerable family from all sorts of other threats. So somehow strength, independence, exteriority rather than interiority, these seems to be some of the classic marks of this difference between the sexes at a very basically physiological level. Okay, that makes sense. I mean, I think within the context of that sort of very difficult existence, that sounds like a pretty sensible division of labor. None of them, neither of them have it particularly easy. 
Yeah, sure, you might say in today's terms that, oh, I'm a woman, I have a right to define myself, and I want to go on the hunt as well. Well, in all likelihood, if you go on the hunt sort of back then, you're going to end up getting bored, gored by a saber-toothed tiger, trampled by a mammoth. So, I mean, whether you stay home, whether you go out, both, both options are pretty crappy, in a sense. I mean, you're suffering and sort of slowly dying in each scenario. And, you know, the notion of rights, I mean, what, 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 what even is that? That doesn't even figure into the, the equation at this point. Okay, so that's kind of this evolutionary, physiological, sort of natural, in the most basic sense of the word, kind of option. Now, what happens when we fast forward a few million years, let's say, and we have a situation where we, let, we now live in civilized society. We have free time. Life is pretty damn good compared to our ancestors. So you have all sorts of new questions. Well, if we can kind of control and master physiology, if we can sort of say, you know, life is not just about surviving, but now we have all these options now. Well, what does that mean for this male-female difference? Is there anything there? Maybe it's just a natural physiological phenomenon that with our technology, with our culture, with our civilization, we can kind of overcome and we don't really have to worry about that anymore. So anyone can do anything. There's no essential, you could say, metaphysical or ontological reason or significance for this male-female relation. It's just an evolutionary, adaptive, physical, natural sort of thing that happens. And if you can sort of transcend it by your technology, well, then why not? And in a certain sense, that's where we are today. So that's kind of the, the question that would be asked of you if you tried to say, oh, look, there's something normative in this physiological account of gender. So, so what if neuroscience says there's a difference between a male and female brain? I mean, big deal. Now I have the capacity to, you know, think like a man or think like a woman if I so want. All it takes is education, this, that, and that, conditioning, and I can sort of be one or the other. It doesn't really matter. Again, there's nothing really holding me to either one of those. Okay, so that's one possibility. Now, fast forward a little bit, and we come to, well, fast forward a lot, actually. We come to the ancient Greeks. And I'll pick them as sort of a, a paradigm, because really, they're the first kind of thinkers who begin to think, try to think in genuinely, what we would sort of now today call genuinely rational terms. They're looking for eternal and immutable foundations for why something exists, why something exists that, 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 the way that it does. And so they're starting to move beyond this, you know, this basically just surviving to reflecting on your existence, to try to represent your existence, to wrestle with the very deep existential questions that are beginning to present themselves to the thinking mind. And so what they want to say is, well, is there something essential, let's say, about being a man or being a woman? Is this something more than simply a contextual fact um, given to us by the natural environment, given to us by culture? Or is there something ontological going on with this fact of male and female identity. So the Greeks are very interested in these kinds of foundations, these foundational questions about what it means to be, what it means to exist. And so they start to say, well, you know, staying home, looking after the kids versus 
going out and hunting and slitting people's throats. Well, you know, it's, 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 it's pretty cool to be male, and it's not so cool to be female. So females seem to have this sort of weakness, this constitutional inability to sort of, you know, stand up tall. They seem to have this, this emotional dependence because they're always caring for the children, so they don't really seem to think right. Um, so somehow being a man is just, you know, it just makes sense. It's better, right? I mean, we're, we're smart, we're intelligent, we're rational. Women are emotional. And, you know, there's this menstrual blood and bodily fluids, and they're just, they just seem like they're so natural. And, you know, if they're having babies all the time, it probably means that they're into things like sex. And, you know, sex is kind of like a bit of a loss of the self. It's sort of, I feel like I'm pulled out of myself, I'm losing control. And, of course, it's woman that tempts me, so she's bringing me down as well. So somehow if I want to be a man, I've got to be able to stand above that. So somehow there's something wrong with woman. She's kind of inferior. So someone like Aristotle will say, well... In the conception of a, a female, it's a case of the sperm not shooting straight, if you will. So a woman is essentially a kind of a deformed male. Yeah, she's got a role to play, and someone's got to raise the kids, right? But in terms of these broader metaphysical foundations, the kind of paradigm of excellence for the Greeks really becomes the male. And this sort of exteriority, this thinking, this rational kind of dimension. And so they come up with these kind of divisions in their thinking between the temporal, the eternal, the natural, the, well, not really supernatural, that wasn't really in their register yet, but the, the heavenly realm. So Plato's got this idea of the eternal forms. And somehow existence is a fall away, from, temporal existence is a fall away from that form, and it doesn't realize itself until it sort of comes back to that eternal form. So they start to come up with these sort of conceptual distinctions between temporality and eternity, between finity and infinity. So you see a kind of notion of a distinction between the eternal over the temporal, the soul over the body, rationality over emotion, um, humans over animals, masters over slaves, Greeks over pagans, and of course, I mean, obviously, males over females. So it kind of makes sense within this hierarchical kind of conception of existence that they start to develop. So at this point, they've demythologized the myths and said, you know, there is some eternal truth that transcends all this flux, all this craziness. Um, so somehow they're moving towards a much clearer, rational, um, spiritual understanding of existence. So somehow to be, you've got to leave the body and all its sufferings and all its problems behind and seek after this eternal um, truth beyond the body, this eternal realm of spiritual essences, whatever you want to call it. And somehow in terms of our existence here on earth, it's the male that most perfectly approximates this ideal state. The male seems to have more control over himself. He's less invested in natural things. He seems to have this transcendence about him. Whereas woman seems to have more of the qualities of imminence, sort of this being grounded, being enmeshed, being trapped in the world and worldly things. So, just to give you a few examples of the way that some of the big boys thought about this, you have Plato saying, there's nothing practiced by mankind in which the masculine sex does not surpass the female. So he's better at everything than women. Which, you know, I mean, I don't think you can really sustain that empirically. I mean, mothers do a pretty damn good job raising kids, 
Um, and I think there's something there. But again, if you've already kind of devalued that, well, that's not that important. In the important things, at least, man is better than woman. Or Aristotle, he says, the rule of the soul over the body is natural, which, of course, makes the male by nature superior and the female inferior. The one rules and the other is ruled. The courage of man is shown in commanding, of a woman in obeying. So it's all very simple. It's all very simple. We've got these sort of these roles that we very easily slot into, and you just sort of have to become that role, and there you go. Now, jumping ahead a little bit more, another little time warp, we reached a Christian tradition, and of course, in many respects, early Christianity, scholastic Christianity, they adopt many of the categories of Greek metaphysics. The early church really saw in Plato the Neoplatonic modes of thought, and a lot of ideas that worked within the Christian revelation. Um, St. Thomas, for example, saw Aristotle as a source of wisdom. And in many respects, that's a very good and, and, and proper thing. There are a lot of keen intuitions within Greek metaphysics that show us that, yes, somehow this world is not what we were created for. We were created for something else. Greeks got that. And of course, that's what Christianity seems to be premised on. There's something better than all of the pain and the suffering and the faults and the sins of this world. And that's what we must keep our eyes on. Now, it just so happens, and again, this is the question. Well, did the Greeks get it right in, in relation to this question of man and woman? And that's what we're kind of wrestling with. Um, a lot of Christian thinkers, and there are ways in which genuinely Christian thought, I would say, sort of subverts the worst elements, you might say, of this sort of simple Greek binary or polarity, but you can easily see the classical thinkers within Christianity adopting many of the elements of Greek metaphysical thinking in relation to man and woman. So, for example, St. John Chrysostom, he says, she is the woman, the weaker vessel, whereas you are a man. For this reason you were ordained to be ruler, and were assigned to her in place of a head, that you might bear with the weakness of her that is set under you. So that's kind of Plato, that's kind of Aristotle. Now, that's not to say that Chrysostom is only a Platonist or an Aristotelian. He's a Christian. And that perspective is in, many, is in many senses undermined and contextualized within his broader Christian vision. Because, of course, um, we know that it's man and woman in Christ. We know that from Ephesians. We know that in St. Paul. So something is happening here. But you can also see that when these early Christian thinkers are kind of thinking in natural modes. Again, they're drawing on sort of what would have been empirical kind of philosophical consensus and saying, well, look at nature. This is what it seems to make sense. In their phenomenology of the time, if you will, man is superior, woman is inferior. So you see these elements sort of cropping up within Christian thinkers. For example, this is, this is one of my favorites um, from St. Augustine. He says... How much more agreeably could two male friends, rather than a man and a woman, enjoy companionship and conversation in a life shared together? I mean, so that's, that's excellence. You know, you're having the best time as a man when you're down in the pub talking with your mates. And, you know, the old ball and chain at home, well, you know. Again, there's, there's chaos there. She's kind of like drawing you out of yourself in a way that kind of makes you uncomfortable. 
And, you know, she's sort of nagging. You've got to do the chores, and you're probably failing as a husband, let's be honest. So she's going to still kind of be on your back, whereas, you know, you're hanging out with your mates. They don't care what you're doing in your life. You're sitting there drinking beer with them. This is great. This is, this is the, 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 the prime, the excellent. Um, so, I mean, the question here then would be, well, is this chaos, let's say, that woman represents in terms of how she seems to call masculinity something else, is that just a good, bad thing, or is that actually a good thing? Is there something there that's a perfection rather than a, an imperfection? Just to kind of get us thinking along those lines. One more example. Um, St. Thomas, he says, in very simple terms, um, I don't suggest saying this to your wife if you're married, he says, the wife is naturally subject to her husband as governor. So I, I'm the governor of my wife. I rule with a sovereign blah, 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 blah. So she, she, she obeys me and when I speak. He says the relation of a husband to his wife is in a certain way like that of a master to his servant, insofar as the latter ought to be governed by the commands of his master. I don't think we speak like that anymore. And I don't think it's just a matter of sort of cultural superiority or what C.S. Lewis called chronological snobbery either. I mean, there's something here that seems a little bit kooky, at least from our contemporary, or even our deepest contemporary theological standards. Someone like a, a JP2, for example, how he approached the question of this relation of man and woman in marriage when it comes to this headship or authority and this obedience and submission of the wife. So again, what do we do with a passage like that? How do we wrestle with the deeper ontological and anthropological presuppositions that seem to be written into it? Okay, so there's a very quick crash course on the Greeks and this attempt to metaphysically codify and explain this relationship between the genders, the sexes. Now, of course, while all that's going on, there's this another sort of colonial, tribal people that are actually coming up with their own really quite sophisticated rationale for the relationship between male and female. Of course, I refer here to the Jewish people. I refer here to Genesis, which is, for the Christian, the mother load of basic anthropological questions. Of course, read in this most deepest sense, through the lens of Christ. And that's what we saw JP2 do, for example, in the theology of the body. He reads Genesis through the eyes of Christ. So Genesis is the, the sort of created prototype that is fulfilled by Christ. Anyway, so the point here is that Genesis is actually a pretty remarkable text. It's the product of a very old oral tradition it's the sort of synthesizing of various streams of thought, and it comes up with this notion of man and woman somehow created in the image and likeness of God. And this is a very complex, this is a very sophisticated rationale when you get inside the text. Does anyone here um, follow Jordan Peterson? Come on, some of you must. Yeah, okay, good, good. Something of a, of a cultural phenomenon today, a fellow countryman. Um, there's a few half-decent Canadians out there. Um, 
the one thing, okay, so you know how you can go on onto YouTube and you can see Jordan Peterson destroys leftist professor. There's all these sort of clickbait type things on YouTube. And you know, it's, it's usually not as sort of fantastic and devastating as, as that. And it's, you know, he's, he's a pretty thoughtful guy. And he's not out to demolish people. Although that actually is usually what happens. Um, <laughs> anyway, my point is, the one thing I would recommend watching of Peterson is his... I think it's a 12-part lecture series that he recorded in Toronto. You can watch it on his... You can find it on YouTube, on his website. You can find the transcript as well. And it's basically um, a 12-part lecture series on the psychological themes in the Old Testament. And so he's looking at the Old Testament, not first, not, not really as a revealed text, although he thinks there is something truly remarkable about this text. Purely as a piece of human wisdom, he thinks... You know, Genesis, let's say, and the kind of archetypal stories that are told there are incredibly profound, incredibly perceptive in terms of how we understand um, what it means to be human. So he does this 12-part lecture series looking at, you know, he employs a kind of Jungian, you know, there's Carl Jung, psychoanalysis, psychology. He kind of looks at it from that point of view. From the Christian perspective, it's not enough. But I would say there's something very, very rich going on there that's worth looking at. Anyway, the point, getting back to Genesis, is that in this text, we see something very profound going on in terms of our understanding of male and female. So we've got the first Genesis account, which reads, God created man in his image. In the divine image, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So here we've got man... He doesn't self-create. He's created by God, something other than himself. He's not created simply as a generic androgynous being. He's created in the image of God, and somehow maleness and femaleness correspond to who God is in and of himself. So in one sentence, he said something very remarkable. The text has said something very remarkable about what it means to be human. Now, that's not all. If we get to the second creation account, we see a somewhat more detailed account given for this phenomenon of man being created male and female in the image and likeness of God. And it reads thus. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a suitable partner for him. So the Lord God formed out of the ground various wild animals and various birds of the air, and he brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Whatever the man called each of them would be its name. The man gave names to all the cattle, all the birds of the air, and all the wild animals. But none proved to be the suitable partner for the man. So God says it is not good that man should be alone. In other words... You can't figure yourself out. You can't fulfill yourself as an individual. You can't figure yourself out as a male, as a man, somehow, without this partner that God will create in the next passage of this Genesis text. So to be is to be in relation. To be is to come from God. To have your existence encoded in a certain way to mirror or image God himself. And God is saying, look, you can't do that on your own. You can't do that as a solitary individual. So there's kind of a shot across the bows of Greek metaphysics in this account. Somehow, 
the other embodied person who stands before you has something to do with who you are. And you can't define yourself outside of your dependency, your contingency, your incompleteness apart from that other person. And now we're going to see in the Genesis text that that other person, that other person who's going to complete you is a woman. So you don't define the image of God when you go down to the pubs, uh, the pub and hang out with your mates. Somehow your wife, your spouse, the female other has something to do with your identity as an image of God. So the next part of the Genesis passage. So the Lord God cast a deep sleep on the man. And while he was asleep, he took out one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. The Lord God then built up into a woman the rib that had been taken from the man. When he brought her to the man, the man said, This at last, this one at last, is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called woman, for out of her man this one has been taken. So then the text goes on to say, That is why a man leaves his father and mother and clings to his wife, and the two of them become one body. The man and his wife were both naked, yet they felt no shame. So not only is the image of God somehow realized by the man-woman relation, but there's also none of this sort of sin and disorder and chaos that we see today in a fallen context. There's a condition of what JP2 calls original unity amongst, between these two people and in their relationship with God. Everything's great. Now, almost as important as that created anthropological foundation in Genesis is the next chapter in Genesis where we see kind of the, the reverse image of that in the curse that God imputes to man and woman for disobeying him and eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it says something very important about this masculine-feminine difference. So Genesis 3.16, to the woman. This is going to be a real bummer, ladies, if there, was any, if there were any ladies here. I will intensify the pangs of your childbearing. In pain shall you bring forth children. So you're going to be stuck in your tent giving birth, and it's going to suck. It's going to suck a lot. Your husband's going to be out having a good time. Well, not really, but anyway, we'll get to that. Further, this is the real, this is the real killer here. Your urge shall be for your husband, and he shall be your master. So the text understands there's something going on here that's going to be a negative sort of reverse image of that perfect unity and harmony and communion that they used to share. Now your husband's going to dominate over you, and it's going to be pretty rotten. You could sort of say, you know, today people, people are always talking about toxic masculinity. Sort of like if, you, if you've got a penis, there's something really wrong with you. It kind of comes from this text. And you know, there's, there's, a, there's, there's empirical truth there. There is this violence, this dominating aspect of being male that and we would be naive to say that it's not there. It is there. There's this violence here. There's this domination. There's this lusting here. That's part of fallen masculinity. Um, but again, is that it? Is there redemption to that? Is there actually something positive within masculinity that counters those negative things and that who you, is who exactly you're actually supposed to be? Anyway, so here's woman going to be a rough go for it. And probably if you look at human history, you know, that's kind of borne out by experience. Now, you look at our fate, we don't get off so easy as well. 
To the man, God says, cursed be the ground because of you. In toil shall you eat its yield all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles shall it bring forth to you as you eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall get bread to eat until you return to the ground from which you are taken. For you are dirt, and to dirt you shall return. Get out there and get to work, and oh, by the way, you're going to die at the end of it. You're nothing. You make it. So, you know, it's not particularly glorious being a male either. Um, I don't really see that kind of Greek metaphysical idealism in this text. I mean, it's pretty much going to be crappy if you're a woman or if you're a man. Now, so that's the Old Testament. Genesis. And if you look at sort of the entirety of the Old Testament after Genesis, it really is kind of an extended account of the unraveling of that original creation account. Everything's typified by what Christ will later call your hardness of heart. And it's a story of man constantly going against his creator. God picks him up, puts him on his feet and says, try again. We try again. We fall on our face again. God picks us up. Now, hopefully we're learning something along the way. But eventually we get to the time of the New Testament. Christ appears and says, look, I'm the answer to all your problems. And, you know, focus on me and I'll fix, fix things for you. And this is real redemption. This is real salvation. So we see here an event in time. We see God becoming incarnate. God becoming a man in Christ. And in some sense, saving us from this bondage, this concupiscence, this inability to realize that original plan of the beginning. Now, in Ephesians, we get a few more texts relating to this masculine-feminine question, which I'll burn for you through quickly, because we're probably pushing the time limits here. Of course, one of the famous ones is Ephesians 5, 22-24. Kind of used to be read at... Um, Weddings. Um, people tend not really to go for that uh, so much these days. Some do. It's you know it's pretty courageous if you go for it. Wives should be subordinate to their husbands as to the Lord. And there is a qualifier. And what does that mean? How much does it qualify? That's the question. For the husband is the head of his wife, just as Christ is the head of the church. He himself the savior of the body. As the church is subordinate to Christ. So wives should be subordinate to their husbands in everything. The question there as well, is St. Paul just sort of mimicking Greek metaphysics there? Or is this qualifier in the Lord, in Christ? Does that somehow subvert and transform this relationship between man and woman? Is there something more going on here than that simple sort of ruler, ruley relationship? Um, We could talk about 1 Corinthians Um, there Paul sort of reiterating some of the things he said to the Ephesians. He says, I want you to know that Christ is the head of every man and a husband the head of his wife and God the head of Christ. So he starts to sort of flesh out some of the implications and it's kind of in a liturgical context. He'll be saying, look, women, you need to be be silent in, in the context of worship. Only the husband can speak. And so again, difference hasn't gone away. It's still here. And it seems a little bit uncomfortable probably to most of our contemporary ears. The question is, well, what what does it actually mean? How much is St. Paul transforming the brokenness of the curse of Genesis, or is he just sort of parroting Greek metaphysics? Now, 
Oh yeah, St. Paul also says that women shall be saved by childbirth and probably by making sandwiches as well. Okay, I'm being facetious. Um, but, you know, the difference is still there. And it's still, it's kind, of, it's kind of raw. It kind of makes us uncomfortable. Of course, we also have Galatians 3, 27 to 28. Um, he says here, For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free person. There is not male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So here it seems to be, well... Gender differences seem to be relativized here. And this is the key proof text for the progressive Christian trying to say, look, gender means nothing theologically. Men men can be priests, women can be priests, roles can be interchanged, it doesn't matter. Look, Galatians says so. Well, Galatians may say that, but what about Ephesians and what about Corinthians? You're going to have to do some work sort of demythologizing those texts. So you can't just pick one text and say it sort of says all things. But I think what St. Paul is saying is that this specifier in Christ, it means something. It means that it's not just going to be this relationship of, of fallen authority and domination, etc., etc. So how we make sense of that, what our hermeneutics of these texts are, have, has everything to do with the kind of conclusions that we draw. So, where does that leave us? This is what I want to say. One of the biggest problems in terms of how we wrestle with these kinds of questions is that typically for the mind that is seeking transcendence, that is seeking some kind of spiritual salvation beyond the cares and sufferings and temporalities, uh, temporality and limitations of this world, um, for that kind of mind, the body is always going to be a problem. Temporality, time, our captivity to this world is always going to be something that we need to wrestle with and try to transcend. So as a consequence, the gender difference, seemingly a truth of the created or the natural order, somehow this is not eternal. Somehow this doesn't translate into this future glory, this future transcendent perfection. So as a consequence, woman, as I've said, is a bit of a problem. The relationship of man to woman is a bit of a problem in the basically the whole of Christian or the whole of human history and in the Christian tradition itself. What you make of that? Is it just a natural reality? Or again, does it translate somehow to the infinite and the eternal? Because everything about this drive towards eternity to some pure realm of perfection beyond the limitations of this reality seems somehow always to kind of implicitly or explicitly denigrate that which is seen to belong to this world, to the temporal realm. So we can't seem to be able to really keep the body and the soul, nature, grace, all of these kind of divisions in a proper equilibrium. We always seem to sort of be saying, well, you know, I, I, I like the body over here, but, oh, I, but I'm called to this. So we're kind of being stretched in two different directions. And that's why these kind of distinctions very easily end up being dualisms. Now we've just seen Genesis say that somehow this relationship of man and woman is actually a created perfection of being. So is there a way to approach that such that we don't kind of lead, come to these dualistic kinds of temptations? Now, If we look at being, if we look at existence, and you see this right from the first page of Genesis, 
you seem to see written into the, its fabric or its grammar these kinds of oppositions or polarities. Not necessarily dualisms, but there seems to be a kind of shading of being. For example, you've got light and darkness. You've got good and evil. You've got heaven and earth, transcendence and imminence, spirit and matter, body, soul, man, woman, person, and community. So these seem to be real distinctions, not just dualisms. They seem to be intuitions about the essential and constitutive characteristics of what it means to exist. And again, we see these kind of divisions right in the text of Genesis itself. St. Paul is working with these kinds of divisions in the New Testament. So, maybe instead of sort of seeing these in binary terms, and this is always a temptation as good and bad, of course, you know, good and evil while evil is bad. That's, that's a bit of an exception. But instead of sort of seeing male and female as maybe good but better, um, we, we, we can look at this and say, well, there is a kind of tension here in these polarities that actually brings out something essential in me. And I've mentioned that in relation to woman. So you think of the fact that historically from the male point of view, woman has been seen as chaos. She interrupts me. She seems to make me a worse version of myself. Well, think about Adam in the, in the, in the, in the beginning. You could say, yeah, the woman represents chaos to Adam, but it's a good kind of a chaos. Because it's saying, look, you're not complete without that woman. She's bringing, bringing out something in you that you actually need. So it's not this negative phenomenon. So from the male point of view, you're walking down the street and you see a beautiful woman. That's chaos. And that could be a bad chaos. It could lead you to lust. It could lead you down the garden path. But that's also a good chaos. That could lead to marriage, to union. That could lead to children. That's, that's chaos. But again, what's happening in this is you're being disciplined. You're being trained. You're being trained to see that you, yourself, and your own all-sufficient male identity, that's not everything. That's really not much at all um, in and of itself. You need the other. You need the feminine other. More importantly, you need the divine other, the transcendent other. So somehow these tensions in being are calling us out of ourselves. They're calling us to the eternal and the temporal. So it's not just about escaping these things, but it's about embracing them and finding what their created and redeemed meaning actually is. And within that perspective, we can say something a little bit more significant, I think, about what it means to be male and female. So think of faith in this way. If we're going to try to think, well, what is faith, what is faith actually saying about this relationship? Faith is not just a qualification of our being. It's not just to say, look, you can be a perfect, natural, moral person, and if you do that well, well, you might get to heaven. Well, actually, it's a little more complex with that. Before anything else, faith is a relation. And if we look very closely at this relation and how our identity is fed through our proximity to Christ and to all the relationships that are formed within that, surprise, 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 we see gender. What happens in baptism? You become a son. What happens if you're a son? Well, you discover a father. You've got a heavenly father. What happens if you've got a father? Well, you've got a mother. You've got a mother. Mary is your mother. Church is your mother. Well, the church is also a bride. Christ marries the church. The church gives birth to children. So all of a sudden, we've got all these new gender relationships. 
and they are actually telling us that there is something fundamentally important about what they are mediating. They are, me they are mediating the fact that God is love, that God is a spouse, God is a father, and that somehow this is of the essence of what it means to be. So the extent to which you are called out of your solitary self, you're brought into these relationships, um, this is the extent to which you truly realize yourself as a human being. So the point is then, skip ahead here a little bit. Again, I'm not going to get too far and we can open up to questions, but the point I just want to say is that the difference between the sexes is real. Masculinity and femininity are real. More real than we can actually say. They extend as far up as God himself. Somehow, mysteriously. We're creating his images male and female. He redeems us in and through the spousal relationship of Christ and the church. We become a son in the Son. We discover God the Father. We discover Mary, our mother, the church, our mother. There's this bridal thing going on. There's this spousal thing going on. There's this filial thing going on. And lo and behold, if we look to the highest levels of, of, of existence in God himself and his Trinitarian relationships... There's some like difference, love, generativity, fruitfulness, the need for the other going on in God himself. However much you want to sort of properly qualify that. But the point is to say that we don't find ourselves by sloughing off the body. We don't find ourselves by sloughing off the way in which the opposite sex calls us out of ourselves to some reality that transcends all of our fallen, wounded, broken experiences. So masculinity is not just about force or strength. It's not just about going on the hunt. But it's actually about entrusting yourself as a son, as a husband, as a father, in Christ, after the example of Christ, and realizing that there is something going on here that vastly surpasses all of the otherwise you know, sensible and to a certain extent true intuitions about what masculinity may be, historically speaking. Now, I'll leave you with one thought then. What is masculinity? Well, it's probably everything like you thought it was. It's probably nothing like you thought it was. And it's probably far more than you thought it was. Thank you. That was Connor McSweeney with Hermeneutics of Gender. This talk was given at the Australian Catholic Students Association 2018 National Student Conference on the theme, I am with you always. For more talks, interviews and shows, visit cradio.org.au.